right, so, so far in ION, um, Carl Jung's Compiled Works, part nine and a half. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he talks through uh, what he calls the individuation process, which is the process of finding wholeness. And through this individuation process, you have what he calls integrations of certain archetypes. So there's, there are kind of these uh, parts of yourself that you become aware of, that you consciously add its contents to your conscious mind and find wholeness. So we started this study talking about the shadow, which is the part of the part of a person that they kind of push to the unconscious. Um, it's pushed out of the conscious mind and the conscious personality. And then he talks about the anima or animus, which is your psychology of the opposite sex. And then last time we talked about the self, which this is where Jung starts to get very mystical. The self, it's essentially like the union of opposites. Chaos and order, masculine, feminine, uh, the one and the many, the, the individual and the collective. It's basically all those uh, opposite pairs that kind of the generative energy of everything. Um, so, and, and that sounds very vague, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I guess he views the self as sort of this life force, this this well, this water of life, or, or something. And he goes on next in the book to try to tie it into two traditions. He ties in his idea of the self to the Christian tradition through through Christ being a symbol of the self. And then he ties it into the Gnostic tradition with when he gets into alchemy. Yeah. How's that for a summary? Yeah, that sounds about right, uh, at least for the rest of it, because it would have been kind of hard to go through each chapter and trying to go through the detail of each one, when, as a matter of fact, I feel like the the rest of it was better um, for you and I reading this, at least in our, in our understanding of it, that we basically take it as a whole, if that makes sense. Just going through each thing here, trying to, um, I guess, distill it down into a way that's understandable for at least the both of us. So, and yeah, you yeah, like to say, here's, <clears throat> here's how the Christian tradition sculpted this idea of the self. And he actually gives the Christian tradition a little bit of um, criticisms here and there. And it, view is that the Gnostic tradition is is the response of the Christian tradition, like it was like the counterculture of it. So what he's trying to do is is take what he believes to be good from two two worldviews. Um, so maybe we should start with the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll go back here, um, at least for chapter five. I found it very interesting. Um, going back here, I, I found it interesting in terms of how he related God, in terms of his right hand is his mercy and goodness, and his left hand is justice and wrath. So you have two parts as a whole. Mm. And then um, I, I was relating that then to at least in a more occultic sense, if we were to look that, if we were to bring that down now to an imperfect level for humanity, uh, the right-handed path is more of a path of goodness, wholeness, virtue, while the left-handed path is more of chaos, destruction, vice. And I wrote down the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues, and then the four cardinal virtues, I'll start with that which is, I think, from Aristotle and Plato, uh, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And then you have the main virtues of the right-hand path, humility, chastity, charity, gratitude, temperance, patience, and diligence. And then the left-handed path, which is the path of vice, 
pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. So the seven deadly sins is the way I, how I can best understand that. But I, I do find it, if we're going to bring it up to a higher level now, back up to the level of deity, where you see, at least in the Gospels, where Christ says to those on his right, come into my kingdom, uh, you who cared for the sick, you who did these things, you did these things for the least of me, while those on his left say, depart from me, um, you did not do these things. You did not care for the sick. You did not pursue goodness and righteousness. You did not do these things. Uh, I I think that's quite interesting. Um, I didn't really look into this, but why left-handedness is usually, and we can we don't really have to dwell on this for very long, but this is just a good something just to think about why usually left-handedness is considered not to be the best while the right-handedness is considered the optimal. I, I think that's something to just think upon and digest. It's not really something we necessarily have to talk about more as we go on. Uh, and as well, in chapter 5, evil therefore is nothing but a privation of good, quoting St. Augustine. Um, I would say evil is not necessarily the absence of what is good. Or rather, evil is the twisting of what is good. So evil is still a real thing. Because if you were to say it is the absence of good, then what is evil? Because then evil would be a nothing. And if nothing is evil, then you can't say anything is evil, really. I guess. Right, like it doesn't have substance. Yeah. Yeah. So I say that evil is a twisting of what is good. And it becomes that thing that was once good. Because in the Christian understanding, the devil himself was once an angel of light. If he, since he fell, he became something that is evil, a very real thing. But he's a perversion of what was once good. So it's not the absence of, of a thing. It's rather a twisting of a thing. Yeah. Okay, let me try to... So many good thoughts there. Uh, let me try to wrap this into Christ as a symbol of the self. So, Jung does start by being like, Christ is, Christ is the perfected Adam. He has like the Imago Dei, mm-hmm. and he bears it properly, like like the vessel called the human being. Up until this point, has not lived up until its potential and experienced fullness. And he's good. Jung is good with that. Like, yep, Christ the. Um, the new Adam, the Imago Dei, is performed good. And he also moves on like, well, Christ as the the sacrifice of the ego for, mm-hmm. for like the many. Yeah. He, he's good with that too. Like, um, he's fine with that. But where he starts to get into issues is Jung seems to think that the image of Christ is almost too squeaky clean in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. His thought is that um, the Christ, it's like almost like too perfect and unattainable. And that's when he starts to talk about um, the privato boni. It's my Latin. um, For the privation of the good which is his which is augustine's view on evil mm-hmm. that evil is just the way the world works um with like kind of good taken away so like if goodness was like a light it's like not shining on something and it kind of like festers and withers and wriggles in the dark um he starts talking about that and he spends a lot of time weighing, weighing that idea, which he calls. He seems to think it's equivalent to the, the whole Christian tradition. Which, listening to you right now, you're, mm-hmm. you're not on board with that. No. And even though I like Augustine on that, but continue. Yeah, he comes out on page fifty-three. So, Jung is 
he's Swiss. He's a germ. He's in um, Europe, and he starts talking about some of the horrors of World War II. Uh, one can hardly call the things that have happened and still happen in the concentration camps of the dictator states an accidental lack of perfection. It would sound like mockery. Jung's, Jung's counterpoint to the um, privado bonnie. Um, yeah, my Latin is not my strong suit either. Yeah. His counterpoint, like this, this World War II that's happened in Europe, yeah, you, you can't say that that's just goodness not shining its light. Like mm-hmm. there's something very malicious and intelligent and like pathological about it. Um, and he he likes to. He likes to use that alongside with with Christ. Um, he believes that the Christian tradition shows Christ as like here is like the completed form of of the human, the the Imago Dei well lived up to, and everything else kind of falls short. That that's his view of what Christianity thinks, and he says it's insufficient because it doesn't actually take in like malicious Mm -hmm. evil into account Um, so so he's he's kind of on board with Christ to an extent like Mm -hmm. the sacrificing of your ego for like loving your fellow man more like absolutely that's that's part of the image of the self the perfected human nature, absolutely. But when it when it gets to what he believes leaving out um, the problem of evil, that that's where he departs from Christian tradition and, and starts mm-hmm. to search Gnosticism. Yeah, I would try to relate it if I if I were to make a comment on that. To the human nature of Christ, because there's obviously the divine nature of him where he's able to do miracles, forgive sins, and to be sinless. But in terms of the human nature, the scriptures do say that he was tempted in every way, but yet he did not give himself into sin. But my guess is he did at least struggle in life with hunger, thirst. He probably went to the bathroom. Um, he probably, he, he, did i'm sure get impatient with people but he got impatient with people in a righteous sense so for instance if you see somebody messing up again and again but they're almost not wanting to improve you can be like guy what the heck are you doing you we've done this 30 times already you haven't really done this thing and they give a hundred excuses for why they haven't done it it's like okay you're not actually wanting to improve yourself so I, I think to, and I get where, he, at least the way you're explaining it, where Jung would be coming from, that it, for the human being to try to obtain that perfection, I would assume is a very, very high goal. I, I don't want to call it unreachable, but at the same time, it's a very difficult goal for most, for majority of the human race and I, I think it's just that's why and I'm speaking in this from the Christian sense this is why there's the work of the Holy Spirit which can help you in your day-to-day life so in the Christian sense that's how I would relate it in the Jungian sense I'm sure you know a bit more about that than I would yeah this is what you're saying is like straight gold like yeah to to conciseen it up it's exactly that Jung thinks that the the Christ image is um, perfection where Jung thinks the goal of a person should be wholeness mm-hmm. so and I would agree with him on that one that it should be wholeness yeah so so that's that's his main issue with the Christian tradition is that 
he thinks it's it's bringing people towards perfection and not wholeness it's it's very frustrating because later in the book he says the word perfection um, gets its sense from the Greek word I'm not going to try to read the Greek word it's okay Greek is Greek Atelios. to me it's actually not bad okay wow Jung actually likes to write in Greek letters so I had to quickly yeah, I'll say this he's smarter than me uh, and I, I was listening to Marty Solomon who is one of like a messianic Jew and he makes this argument that the Greeks give us this idea of perfection uh, like you know like the platonic ideal things mm-hmm. being perfect whereas in the Hebrew tradition they have the idea of goodness so in, in Genesis God created something and it was good um, mm-hmm. he created something else as good he created man and he was good good I think he uses like the double word good so I, I think if you brought in more of the the Jewish tradition mm. in his understanding he wouldn't get so hung up on perfectionism which just turns into legalism um, which is a lack of grace uh, he wouldn't get so caught up on on Christ being too perfect and squeaky clean because mm-hmm. there's something to be understood about grace and there's something to be understood about uh, the Hebrew idea of goodness as opposed to the Greek perfection hmm. that's a good way of putting it I'd have to look more into that for a better understanding of that because that sounds it sounds more uh, down to earth and human if that's if I could put it in that way but yeah um, what was another thing I wanted to mention um, yeah, I think I wrote a lot on chapter five, as Christ is a symbol of the self. Obviously, me disagreeing with certain parts of Jung, but I think Jung has um, some good wisdom to bring, at least. Oh, yeah, and here's one thing here. In relation to Christ, to take on willful suffering or to willfully follow virtue, Jung's idea of individuation for somebody will pro- possibly be achieved. So it's... Christ willfully taking on suffering on himself to now this is the I assume this is more the Jungian term Christ taking on suffering for the self is to have better wholeness or to have complete wholeness because you're will you're not trying to deny what is to be done because sometimes and I'm sure this is for myself, what has to be done can be painful. And to relate it to Christ, what he did on Calvary was a very painful thing. Because for Christianity, if you're taking on the entire sins of the world, that's a very painful emotional experience. And then you also have the the whipping, the cross, carrying of the cross up to Golgotha, and then being hung on the cross for like what nine hours after being torn to shreds with a whip yeah that that's taking i think that's taking on willful suffering to have a far better sense of individuation or uh, wholeness so i think this is a good lesson be be able to be it's not that you have to take on suffering for suffering's sake. It's not so much that. But rather, take on what needs to be taken on. And if you have to suffer, then suffer well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um... checking on some technical stuff I think yours is good okay um, sorry, I was just looking for the audio and yours is a little louder than mine okay um, I'll, I'll try to back away a little bit 
yeah, it is. Yeah, the sufferings of Christ is something I'm not. Uh, I don't fully understand. Oh, there's there's a song I should send you. Okay. But continue. Like like we do have things that we're asked to bear, and I I don't know why certain people are asked to bear more suffering than others. Um. And then being Christ, like Christ being him who bore all suffering and being a living example and not caving to fear and like overcoming death. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he was fearful, but you say not caving to fear. So that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's not so much not being afraid, but rather mo- moving past what you are scared of. Or even if you're scared in the moment, it's taking it step by step regardless. Could you um, give that summary you gave on, on Jung's view of alchemy? Sure. Uh... So this is getting into the the second tradition that Jung is trying to synchronize. Yeah. So the alchemical interpretation of the fish, uh, fish and alchemy, or all that other stuff, here's what I wrote down. I want to start with this. In regards to knowing all by seeking knowledge from within, so this is basically um, know thyself. You're seeking knowledge from within. Jung might be in agreement with this. One cannot truly know something unless if he has not first either seen nor experienced it. True knowledge begins outside oneself. In order to better know thyself, one must first experience the world outside of himself before he can look within himself. If Christ is the ideal God-man that we are to emulate, then first we must seek that which is an ideal outside of ourselves in order to turn inward and think upon who we are as a person. Though change does begin with the self, the self must know what to change into in order to be a more complete person. Um, So in regards to change, how I understood how Jung was um, using alchemy is that in order for a... um, a oh I can't think of it a, a, an impure object that's what I was trying to think of in order for an impure object to become pure it has to go through fire it has to go through a process first before it can be purified and so for the human soul for us to be more cleansed there are times in our lives where we have to go through a, um, a trial by fire for ourselves because think about times in your life where it has been a hard road, but then once you've been through the other side of it, think about how much how much you look back and realize, oh, I learned so much through that. I didn't realize I was able to get through that. I didn't realize I was capable to get through that, but I actually was. Uh, for me to relate it is basic training. It was... It was just tough for me because I had never really experienced anything hard in my life. That was the first time I really experienced some sort of hardship. And going through that, that made me a stronger person. Now, of course, there are times in life where I'm sure a challenge or struggle can break us. But the question is, do we remain in our brokenness or do we pick ourselves up? and continue to walk despite the brokenness that we feel because i think in order to have a more integrated person you it is good to continue to walk forward there's a proverb in this in the bible that says the wicked man falls once but the righteous man falls seven times and gets up eight so what does this mean the wicked man just stays down stays in his misery but the righteous man continually gets up despite the challenge So I understand if there's something in life that may have knocked you down, but if you continue to remain bitter, you're just going to stay bitter and you're not going to be a more 
as Jung would put it, as a more integrated person. Now, I get it. Tragic tragedy can happen. Um, you have some sort of uh, possible mental illness or something, but it is good to fight through that. And sometimes we may not have the strength to fight through that. That is why it is good to get with somebody who might help you. Be it a, a good friend, family, therapy, even if you need to go to the gym, which I like to do. Oh, shoot. I don't even know. To, I'll just take a stab at getting in on this conversation. So, yeah, I'll try to tie it back into alchemy. So alchemy, it's like the precursor of chemistry. Uh, chemistry literally is like the study of change. You mm-hmm. mix hydrogen, oxygen, you get water, uh, all these things. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. <laughs> yeah, so, so alchemy, um, precursor to chemistry, which it is about change, except alchemy, it it had this view that the person mixing stuff, that there was a very soulish part in the process for them. With chemistry, if you mix the right chemicals in the right proportions, you'll get the same amount. But to the alchemist, uh, when they're trying to create some new substance, they thought that there were things such as, did I close the door? Did I put salt around the room to make this potion um they they thought there were certain rituals that the person did that actually affected the alchemy process that that the person making the chemical is just as important as the thing itself and alchemy butted up against a christian tradition because it, it viewed the material a lot more Whereas uh, the Christian world was more about the world to come mm-hmm. and, and the alchemy was more grounded in, in practice with physical things. Uh, there's some very interesting scientists who were alchemists that you wouldn't really believe, I think. I, I think Isaac Newton was one. Yeah, yeah, I think he dabbled in it. And I think he was into magic, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I think he believed that dragons were real. <laughs> Just, although I, I'd have to double check that. Don't you can fact check me on that one. Yeah, and like if you have these elegant, eloquent equations that can make you do trajectories and Newton's laws, but you you don't know, you don't know why matter changes form, why it can burn up paper, bake some ingredients, and it, it changes chemically. Then you can almost see why he felt that his his worldview is insufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's alchemy. Alchemy. Dead on. It's it's about transformation, and and you also brought up the idea of ref- refinement. I think oh, I might be butchering the proverbs here. I think there's like a proverb about man being refined like silver that you heat up silver and then all the impurities go to the top mm-hmm. because the metal's probably going to be heavier than the other junk because uh, metals are pretty dense and the silver be heated up and you'd like skim off the top mm-hmm. so I, I think there is a proverb that kind of does what you're saying with we go through trials so that we might be refined fighting the good fight um, mm-hmm. be, and our souls becoming more pure. So, yeah, to you, alchemy is all about transformation and refinement, like you said. He, he wasn't really getting into the beliefs that you can make potions that do particular things. Uh and that quote you read about things being understood through the external world before the internal world he he believes that some of the spiritual practices of alchemy may have been true internally except they were projected onto 
the quest to create the Philosopher's Stone um, or Lapis Lazuli, which I think they're kind of the same thing. It's it's a material that's essentially pure potential. It can transform lead to gold or it can, like in our modern chemistry, we know mm-hmm. these things are impossible, but p- part of their quest was trying to isolate the substance of transformation it's a little weird right i i'm following you though it's like taking a flower and saying ah this is like beauty let me extract the essence of beauty out of this flower doing some concoction and then now that i extracted beauty i can like turn this into a love potion make someone fall in love with me okay like it's it's trying to like extract essences in a way that nowadays we don't believe, but, but the alchemists wanted to, to get the philosopher's stone, which could transform any matter into anything else, which was in vain. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of all I have about, about Gnosticism and comparing it to the Christian tradition he views once again his view of Christianity is that Christ was like too squeaky clean and he was kind of the static perfect thing so his attraction to alchemy had to do with this idea of, of transformation which I don't know how he left that out of the Christian tradition, but but he seems to think that like a perfect static ideal versus these practices more towards transformation. He mm-hmm. thought they were opposite to each other. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're opposite to each other. I'd say we as changeable beings can. Um, walk ever forward towards what is i guess but like you said static but i don't like to use the word static because it means that it is not even something that is movable though you could say god is unmovable i think god is always in motion but remaining the same if that makes sense what i mean by in motion meaning he continuously moves throughout our lives that's what I mean by it. It's continuing, continuously working us as human beings, and that we are the changeable, walking towards what is uh, never, what will always never change. But that that which is already unchangeable is already perfection, and to already strive for that. I think, and I'm trying to bring this down to a practical level. I think for us, if we get too hung up with the fact that we messed up here and there, we're going to drive ourselves insane, though it is still good to uh, work on ourselves. Rather, work on just the small aspects of yourself that need improvement. Don't don't worry so much about the big stuff, because the small stuff eventually leads up to the big stuff. This is why you do small habits to create bigger habits. And I want to say this in regards to the Gnostic uh, Demiurge. And here's my note on it. Although the Gnostic understanding of the Demiurge is wrong from uh, traditional Orthodox Christian thought to relate this to the human person, we can be the blind makers of our own life without having the ability to properly understand life in general or even the tools to deal with it the life we live will be lacking proper integration in our own lives so if we're blind to the tools that we should use we're going to be blind makers of our own world but if we have the proper tools of understanding we don't have to be blind watchmakers we can we can have proper understanding of ourselves but it takes time it is something that must be developed for ourselves and that and my understanding of the gnostic demiurge is obviously 
the Gnostics believe that Yahweh, or God of the Old Testament, is the Demiurge who trapped us here in our material realm. They, they believe that the material realm is evil and that the spiritual is the more ideal. It's very platonic in its thought. But that's, that's a completely different topic. But uh, yeah, I, I think that the if we relate ourselves to a demiurge, despite the, the idea of the demiurge, I would say is wrong. We shouldn't, we should see ourselves as always ever seeking. But there's that scripture that says, ever seeking but never finding. Let us seek and find what is true. The question, next question would be, well, what is true? Well, we can go with John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I guess I only have two other thoughts. These are two more of Jung's thoughts, and I, I'm probably just going to present them in different ways than Jung did, just to make it a little um, easier. So two ideas, Jung. One was the hermaphrodite. Uh, the hermaphrodite it's a male female I'll say combo it's the male and the female being in one body being in one body yeah yeah he since Jung's view is that the self is the union of opposites he views that as something very divine um, it's almost as like the first being is like, and this is just like a pagan tradition, but you know, the first being is one material and then they split into earth mother and sky God. Mm -hmm. And then they, you know, they have intercourse and then create all the creatures of the earth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like everything is like sexually created out of, out of this um, hermaphrodite that kind of like split in half and just made everything. Which, it's a very weird way of thinking, to be honest. Uh, and I'm going to compare it to Christian tradition in a second. But it's, it's almost this idea that there's like this, this first combination and then consciousness was almost split in half into male and female that that this hermaphrodite was kind of all things and it intentionally divorced itself from its own state of awareness to produce all different creatures of all different types so that's that's like a pagan view basically and then a Christian view in Genesis, it wasn't, it wasn't like things were just all sexually created. It was more of God created each creature and created the male and female. Mm -hmm. So it, it almost puts that divine attribute at the male and female level rather than like God ripped in half and sexually <laughs> created everything. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you just birthed the deer and then you just birthed the rabbit and then you birthed this and then everything was made. Like, mm -hmm. that, that's actually more put at the human level, which is quite different from the pagan traditions. Um, I, I guess takeaways from that, Jung really likes to make God the union of masculine and feminine mm -hmm. uh, and just his thoughts about masculine and feminine the universals having to like separate from each other and like divorce being one hermaphrodite to be two things to then create all things hmm. um I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, yeah, I guess his view is that 
um, like having masculine and feminine separate and interacting uh, raises like the consciousness of the cosmos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, I get what you're saying. It's it's kind of hard to describe it. Uh, I don't really have much on that. I, I think a good way of putting it is I think to contrast it with the Christian understanding it's like God already a whole being creates man first and then sees that man needs a helper and then he creates Eve. So you all so you will already have something that is created first man and then woman. Something that's created separate from one another rather than say having two things together and then they have to split they're created separate from each other although woman is created from man it's the it's the thing that the man and the woman don't split in full knowledge of one another and hopefully i'm not misunderstanding that but rather you have a, a already whole creator creating two different things I would say that man and woman are meant to be separated, are meant to be separate from each other in the sense that they are their own persons, but they come together in a sense of wholeness towards each other for a greater union of love. Because I don't think love is meant to be complete and total self-love. I think greater love is shared love with one another. Obviously, humanity is can be selfish, but that's why we need to learn to dampen our selfishness and have a greater sense of giving of one another, willful giving. But obviously, it's, there's different ways of loving different people. Yeah, I actually was Googling this, too. There's, yeah, the majority, majority of belief is that Adam was male, Eve was female. There's this really weird view by some rabbis that think that Adam was hermaphrodite. <laughs> it's like, I was looking it up, and it's it's just kind of all this woke um, scholarship trying to reinterpret mm-hmm. the tradition. I was just kind of shaking my head at it. But, um, yeah, like, like I can see why Jung thinks that the coming together of masculine and feminine and sexual union is an act of creation because it is creating more life but to generalize that act of creation as how god creates things i i don't know i don't i don't think it has to be a generalization that he makes um like i can see why like i can see why anciently like I don't know, caveman brain, mythological brain. Mm-hmm. You could say, like, ah, sex is an act of creation, and, like, how is that mountain made? Probably sex. But then, <laughs> you know, it, it makes more than just another man, so it must have been, mm-hmm. like, a really great, great act of sex. That <laughs> the sky and was there, and the trees are there, and the birds are there. <laughs> like, it, I'm not in love with that interpretation. I, I can see why you'd want to link sexuality to creation, but I, eh. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good way of saying that. Not everything needs to revolve around a sexual identity or even sex itself, because there is more to life than sex, but sex does help create human life for obvious reasons. But um, it, it is something that can be enjoyed within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman and that is something i think that they should enjoy as often as possible but with that being said i I think a a good understanding of genesis is wholeness two people who are separate can be together in a sense of wholeness and now this is just me kind of going off on a little tangent wholeness can be sought even apart from somebody, but yeah, I think it's just loving the loving the other person for who they are, despite their own inadequacies, even if it can be a little frustrating. But that 
that's just my little tangent. And do, do you want me to just rush to the ending of this? Yeah, go ahead. I don't really have much else. So yeah, near the end of the book, Jung takes an attempt at redefining God. <laughs> and he just keeps on wanting to add Satan into the Holy Trinity. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah, know I why. Know. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he thinks that He believes that the Christian tradition has become too detached from the shadow um, and kind of our evil desires. And he, he keeps on adding Satan back into the Trinity. And I, I think it kind of boils down to this. Jung's view is, Jung's view is that whoever God is, God is the God of, of life and of decay, of health and of disease, of abundance and of famine. Mm -hmm. that, that God is this being that kind of makes and takes away and builds up and destroys. And with that, he has to put Satan back in the Trinity and make claims about God having a left and right hand, as you said earlier. The issue with this belief is you don't really get a good view of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. It kind of turns into a eternal reincarnations view or, um, or almost just like a God that's just like running a simulation is kind of amused by it. So I, I can see why he would make the final statement that that is God. And, you know, there's parts of nature that is very cruel. And he, he almost generalizes nature and makes God like the God of nature of all things visible. Mm -hmm. like the whole ball of wax. Whereas the Christian view is that there's war on earth because there's war in heaven. That the invisible things got corrupted first, then the visible things got corrupted, like a third of angels um, being taken away. And there was one other quote. When he's talking about Satan, um, he likes to relate him to the myth of the dragon that the dragon hoards gold and that it's kind of protecting a great treasure. And the hero myth is that the hero defeats the dragon without getting scorched by its fire and is able to take the gold. Mm -hmm. This isn't opposed to Christianity. I, I guess his view is that um, his, Jung's view is that Satan is also a teacher and that there's a way of getting gold without being slain by the dragon and that's the hero's um, quest of not getting conquered by your dark side but re retrieving the gold that, that might be hidden um, in the parts of yourself that you repress That's, I don't know, I, I don't think his thoughts on that have to be opposed to Christianity. Um, although he thinks slaying the dragon is like part of man's destiny, he wants to put the dragon or Satan in the Trinity and say it's a necessary part of the divine, which as Christians, we, we just right. kind of got to throw that out. Right, and... For understandable reasons. Yeah, I I don't really have much else to add to it. I think you you had a good uh, ending summary there. Do you have anything else? I guess getting to the end of this book, I read Jung in 
in high school, mm-hmm. end of high school, right before college. And I got super into him. And finishing this book, I just got the impression that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of good with you. <laughs> like, it's like saying goodbye to a, an old teacher. Mm-hmm. Like, he taught me some stuff, and I, it's almost like I'm hitting some of the brick walls of this philosophy. Um, and I understand his, his hurt with Christianity especially with maybe some of the legalism and perfectionism of certain groups being yeah, crushing I, and not actually leading to wholeness of people. Yeah, and I agree with that too. However, yeah, my, my bag of him is, is pretty mixed. I, I do like his his idea of archetypes is you know, he's called the was called the king of the unconscious I think that's one of his titles mm. um, and I, a friend at work the other day said he listened to the podcast and just brought up the word mindfulness that that's from a different tradition but just the idea of being aware of all the, the stirrings inside yourself and all the things that echo through you after a long day of work and and all the desires that you can kind of be aware of having. Yeah, I really credit you with that of of just this almost balance through awareness. Um, as opposed to his day, all the propaganda and and loudness of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I respect him. He's He's very like kind of wise and zen. However, I I cannot really stomach his version of God. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say his version of God is that's a good way. I honestly, actually, I don't have much thought on it. Yeah, I think the way you were explaining it is good. So we have another book to announce. Yeah, we'll be doing. Next one we'll be doing is uh, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Back on the Lewis train. <laughs> I, 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 really, I really enjoy C.S. Lewis. I've gone through most of his books. Not all of them yet, but most of them. And they're really good. All right. Well, until then. Yeah.